Good morning. Our scripture reading for today is Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. This can be found in your church Bible on page 1003. My name is Debbie Vogan, and I'm a member here at MPC. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, church family here in the sanctuary, down in the fellowship hall, or in Fairfax. My name is David, and I'm excited to open God's word with you this morning. We're in the midst of our series talking about what we should enjoy about God and how we can go about doing exactly that. You see, before we get into the text, we need to remember this, that at the heart of Christianity is a personal God, a personal God. And this means that today, if you are a follower of Christ, it means that you are more than a deist today. We are more than someone who who thinks that God may exist, uh, but he's not knowable. If you're a follower of Christ today, it means that, that you are more than a philosopher, that Uh, someone who thinks the Bible is just a worldview of of how to interpret life. If you're a follower of Christ, it means that you're more than a moralist today, that the Bible is not simply a book about what to do and what not to do. If you're a follower of Christ today, it means that you're more than a scholar, more than someone who simply studies about God. You see, Christianity includes all of these things, but it's so much more. It's so much better. We believe that at the heart of Christianity is a personal relationship with a triune God, that God is one being existing eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you know, this, this makes Christianity unique among world religions, right, that, that God is relational, that love has existed from all of eternity and is at the center of the universe. I was reminded of that this week reading uh, Mere Christianity by, by C.S. Lewis, and, and he says it this way. He says, in Christianity, God is not an impersonal thing nor a static thing, not even just one person, but a dynamic pulsating activity, a life, a kind of drama, almost, if you will, not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. You see, the essence of Christianity is an invitation to an eternal relationship of love, joy, and delight with the triune God. Friends, we were made to glorify and enjoy God forever. So that's what this series is all about. We've been using uh, this book, uh, Enjoying God, by Tim Chester. Uh, We've encouraged our community group leaders to uh, follow along here. Or if you're not in one, you can pick up this book and you can follow along with us. 
As I've been reading this book, near the beginning of it, uh, in, in chapter one, Chester asks us this question. He says, uh, with which member of the Trinity do you have the strongest relationship? Because see, if you think about God in personal terms, and we think about God as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it, it, it makes sense to ask, with which member of the Trinity do, do we have the greatest relationship? And and as I reflected on this in my own life, I was a little surprised about my own answer because I wanted to initially say Jesus, but as I actually thought about it, I thought, you know what? I think I actually have a good relationship most of the time with the Father. At least I'm aware of that relationship with the Father, that He's powerful, that He's loving, and that I can go to Him in prayer. Uh, I know I'm Presbyterian, but I think I even have somewhat of a relationship with the Holy Spirit uh, in the sense that I I understand that he leads and guides me uh, in my life, and and I'm dependent on him on on a moment-by-moment basis. And so I was surprised when I put my relationship with Jesus in third place, (laughs) because this is what I think about my relationship with Jesus. I'm aware of what he did in the past but I'm not always living in a present relationship with him. Now, what that looks like, it looks like I'm aware that Jesus lived, that he died, and that he rose again, but I constantly think that I need more, more than Jesus to be okay. I need more achievement. I need more perfection. I need more things to justify my existence, that Jesus may love me, but sometimes I wonder, does he really like me? You see, so many times in my own life, I can be thinking that I don't measure up and I will get the worst of me. What about you? Do you have a daily life-giving and joy-filled relationship with Jesus, not just in the past, but in the present? Well, I want to share some reflections that I found helpful in this passage, specifically about enjoying the Son's grace through the priestly ministry of Jesus. So we're going to walk through these three verses, three sections. We're going to look at the priestly office, the priestly ministry, and then our priestly practice. But before we talk about God, let's talk to God one more time. Father, Son, and Spirit, Help me help us to enjoy our relationship with you in this very moment, that as we take a few moments in your word, that you might actually reveal yourself in a real and a powerful way that allows all of us to delight in you because you delight in us. In your name we pray, amen. So look down at verse 14. It says, since then we have a great high priest Jesus, the Son of God. Now, we don't call ourselves priests, we call ourselves pastors, and so you may not be very familiar with the concept of priest. And so let me walk you uh, briefly through the office of the priest in the Old Testament. You may remember that they did a variety of things in the Old Testament, specifically to lead the people in worship. Uh, If you really want to go check it out, you can read Leviticus 8, 9, 10, and 16. And if you're real bold, you can read all of Leviticus if you want to. But in this book, we are told 
what the priests do on a daily basis for the people. You see, they, they had several appointed tasks to intercede and, and offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. You see, priests in the Old Testament often had their back towards the people because he represented the people to God. He stood in their place. He represented their pain, and he spoke to God on their behalf. The priesthood illustrated our need for a mediator because God is holy and we are sinful. And that we can't enter into God's holy presence without consequences. And, and this makes sense if you think about it, right? Imagine someone spent their whole life tearing you down. And then they showed up at your house for lunch. <laughs> or imagine uh, someone who was on the most wanted list and then going into the FBI headquarters. There would be consequences. So Israel needed a lot of priests, and there were a lot of them, but there was actually just one high priest, a special office. And the high priest had special duties where on the Day of Atonement, he would pass through the veil, through the curtain, into the most holy place. He would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, representing the forgiveness of sin one time of year. So that's an explanation, brief, of the office of the priesthood in the Old Testament. Now, if, if you were to read through Hebrews, Hebrews' main point is really the priesthood of Jesus. That Jesus is better than all the Old Testament priests combined. That he's better than the angels. That he's better than uh, Aaron. That he's better than Moses. That he's better than Joshua. Just a few verses that tell us this. Hebrews 1.4. His son having become as much superior to angels. The son, Jesus, is at the right hand. Hebrews 3.3. 3, that Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Because a son is greater than a servant. Or Hebrews 4.8. If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day. And in Hebrews 8, this is the writer of the Hebrews. He says, now the point and what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old. You see, Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. He has no rival. He didn't just pass into the holy place on earth. But in verse 14 of chapter 4, he passed through the heavens to the right hand of God where he is able to make intercession. And he didn't just sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, but according to verse 16, on the throne of grace so that he is able to save to the uttermost and secure an eternal redemption. This is what Hebrews 9.24 says, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but to heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. What's the point of this? The writer of Hebrews is saying this, 
Jesus didn't just pass through an earthly veil, an earthly curtain, into an earthly sanctuary, into an earthly room, but he went through a heavenly veil to a heavenly sanctuary. You see, from the Old Testament to the New Covenant, the copy gave way to the original, the shadow became the reality, and the promise came to fruition. Jesus is a greater high priest. So that's point one. Jesus is our high priest. But the question that I asked, and the question you might be asking, what kind of priest is he? Does he really understand me? How can I have a present relationship with him? Well, let's consider what this priest is like. Look at verse 15. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. This verse tells us at least two things about the ministry of our true and greater high priest. The first is this. It tells us that he sympathizes with our weakness. He's like us. Jesus is fully human, so he fully understands. That's what Hebrews 5.2 tells us is a qualification of the priesthood. It says, priest had to be chosen from among men. He himself is beset with weakness, so priests can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. You see, priests have to understand us. They have to get us. They have to be like us. Imagine if you went to a priest after experiencing some incredible difficulty in your life, and you went to a priest, and he very quickly said, yeah, 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 tell me what's going on. Okay, 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 I'll pray for you. There would be no priestly connection there. You wouldn't feel like he identified. You would think this priest does not get me. But what if you go to a priest and he takes the time to hear what's going on in your life? He sees you. He understands you. He weeps with you and then he prays. You'll feel entirely different You'll feel seen and understood. You'll feel a priestly connection. You see, in order to represent and advocate for us, Jesus had to sympathize with us. He's conversant with our struggles, and he's subject to weakness. Now, some of you might be sitting there thinking, yeah, But Jesus never had cancer. He's never been through a divorce like mine. Or he's never had a miscarriage. It's true. But you see, underneath these struggles, he experienced the same. He experienced deep anguish when his friend Lazarus died. He experienced painful alienation when he was betrayed by one of his closest followers, Judas. And he experienced unfulfilled longing when he prayed for the, in the garden for God to take the cup from him. You see, wherever you are today, 
Jesus has been there. Frustrated, disappointed, hurt, lonely, weary, weak, or fearful. Jesus has been there. Whatever dangers, sorrows, or trials may come our way, Jesus understands. Now, some of you are still sitting there thinking, you know what? But, yeah, read the end of the verse, though, right? It says, he was tempted, but it also says he he was without sin, so he can't really understand me. Well, that's the second thing that we can understand about Jesus in this verse. He has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. So in one way, he's like us, he's human. In another way, he's not like us because he's never sinned. And if you think about this, it's actually amazing. You see, because Jesus was completely faithful, he was completely tempted. You see, so often we don't experience extreme temptation because we give in. And Jesus never gave in, and so he experienced more extreme temptation than even any of us. So if we want a cookie, right, we eat it. If we feel resentful, we gossip. If we're tempted sexually, we indulge. But you see, Jesus never did, which means he endured even more. C.S. Lewis, again, put it this way. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. We never find out the strength of an evil impulse inside of us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. You see, Jesus, even though he was perfect, is able to sympathize because he was tempted. You know, we we don't experience the extreme temptation to the extent that Jesus did. Just think about him in the wilderness when for 40 days he was hungry and weak and Satan tempted him, but he never gave in. See, Jesus has all the understanding and none of the sin that keeps him from being too self-absorbed about his own problems to care about me and you. And think about this. This is what blew me away studying this passage today. Because Jesus has retained his human body, right? When he rose again from the dead, he has a human physical body. And that means he remains fully human, and he continues to fully sympathize with us in the present. He feels our pain, and he intercedes even more. Tim Chester, in the book, puts it this way. The heart of Jesus is enlarged by his glory and power. He fills the suffering of all of his people without needing to limit his empathy. Jesus understands our weakness and temptations, and he's perfectly and powerfully present with us today. Now, third and finally, let's think a few minutes about how Jesus practices his priestly ministry with us. Let's get very practical and concrete 
about how we can enjoy the Son's grace this week. Look down at verse 16. The consequence is this. So let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, he sympathizes with us. He gets us. So we need to be real with him. I actually think a better translation of this first phrase is this. Draw near with freedom or frankness. Draw near with freedom or frankness. Wouldn't it be great to live without shame? Wouldn't it be great to not be on a roller coaster of adequacy and inadequacy? Well, friends, that's offered to us on a daily basis. If you're not a follower of Christ, you can experience no shame from Jesus. So bring your deepest, darkest sins to him that you're afraid to admit to anyone else. You can be free of shame. And Christian, how about your daily relationship? Don't live with pretense. Be brutally honest with Jesus about your struggles. You see, I think most of us live in a world that specializes in pretending. We're always trying to fake it to appear to be something that we're not. We embellish our accomplishments. We airbrush our appearances. And we ignore our shortcoming, all in an attempt to cover up our shame and inadequacy. And friends, there's a better solution. Jesus, our high priest who understands us so we can hold fast our confession. Here's three practical things you can do this week. You can do them all together. The first thing is this. Approach God with honesty this week. Approach God with honesty Think about your successes and your failures. Think about your struggles and think about your hardships. And let's be real with him. Reveal yourself to him. Second is this. As you're honest with Jesus, I want you to imagine Jesus looking at you from heaven and think about this question. Do it right now. Imagine Jesus looking at you What do you think the expression is on his face? Thinking about your failures, your sins, your struggles, your successes. What do you think the expression of Jesus is right now? You see, that will reorder our enjoyment. Because what I want you to do this week is write down your successes and failures. I want you to read something from Scripture, read something from Hebrews, and hear Jesus say, I will remember your sins no more. And then write down across your journal or your page, finished and forgiven. That's how you enjoy the Son's grace. You see, Christianity is not about appeasing a God who's angry. That's not the gospel. But it's approaching a God who gets you. 
You see, no matter how many times we mess up, this is always what we will find at his throne. Mercy and grace. Mercy, Jesus does not give us what we actually deserve. Grace, Jesus also gives us what we don't deserve. Friends, we have a high priest who loves us more than we love ourselves. You see, we don't need more than the Son's grace, but we do need more of the Son's grace. We don't need more than the Son's grace, but we need more of the Son's grace. Summary, Jesus is our great high priest who understands us and loves us. So let's draw near to the throne of grace. Let's hold fast our confession that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Let me close with an illustration, a story that's a little silly, but it's one that has stuck with me for a number of years. There was a little boy who was visiting his grandparents, and he was given his very first slingshot. He practiced in the woods, but he could never hit his target until one day he was coming back to his grandma's house, and he was in her backyard, and he spied her pet duck. You know where this is going. (laughs) On an impulse, he took aim, and he let the rock fly. The stone hit, and the duck fell dead. The boy panicked. Desperate, this is not a true story about me, but it could be. (laughs) Desperately, he hid the duck in the woodpile, only to look up and to see his sister watching. (laughs) Sally had seen it all, but she said nothing. Well, later that day after lunch, Grandma said, Hey, Sally, it's time uh, for you to wash the dishes. But Sally said, Well, Johnny told me he actually wanted to help in the kitchen today. Didn't you, Johnny? And then she whispered to him, remember the duck. (laughs) So Johnny did the dishes. And then later that afternoon, Grandpa asked if the children wanted to go fishing. But Grandma said, I'm sorry, Sally hadn't finished her chores and she needs to help me make supper. But Sally smiled and said, that's all taken care of. Johnny wants to do it. And again, she whispered, remember the duck. So Johnny stayed while Sally went fishing. Well, after several days of Johnny being blackmailed, doing both his chores and Sally's, finally he couldn't stand it. He confessed to Grandma that he'd killed her pet duck. And his grandma looked at Johnny and said, I know, she said, giving him a hug. I was standing at the window and I saw the whole thing. And because I love you, I already forgave you. And I wondered how long you would let Sally make a slave of you. Friends, we've already been forgiven of a greater offense. Draw near to the throne of grace today. God has already forgiven us in Christ, so let's enjoy his grace today. Don't let sin make a slave 
of us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, it's, it's an amazing thought. It's an amazing picture that we have a great high priest, a brother, the Son of God, who represents us and who has not just offered an external sacrifice but has offered himself the perfect Lamb of God. And so, Father, help us to see this picture, this image, this reality that right now in this moment you are seated at the right hand of God the Father interceding on behalf of us, your children. And when we look at you, you are smiling at us. So, Father, help us to enjoy your grace this week. It's in your name we pray. Amen.